Neil Shusterman is an award-winning American author. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and then moved to Mexico City during the senior years of high school. In 2015, he received the National Book Award for Challenger Deep, and in 2017, the Michael L. Prince Award Honor Book for Scythe, the first book in the highly acclaimed Scythe trilogy. Neil's latest book, Game Changer, is a science fiction story in which protagonist Ashley Bowman finds himself catapulted into alternate universes where he's forced to confront alternate social realities. Schusterman writes literature in which the reader is confronted by ideas which may well rock their worldview. And I'm delighted that Neil joins me today to discuss those ideas. Hello, how are you doing? So Game Changer, it's a fantastic novel. It's absolutely crammed with ideas, and that's going to give us a lot to talk about over the next half an hour. But I think it's really important for our listeners that we set the story up. So this is the story of a character called Ash Ashley, um, who's a football player. And because we're in the UK, uh, I just have to remind everybody that this is not the football that we're used to. It's American football. He's a a lineman in an American football team and he has a tackle that kind of shifts him into a different universe. And there are a number of shifts like this through the story. To begin with, I wondered whether we might hear you read just the opening chapter of this story. Certainly. Chapter one, full stop. You're not going to believe me. You'll say I've lost my mind or that I've suffered one too many concussions. Or maybe you'll convince yourself that I'm conning you and that you're the butt of some elaborate practical joke. That's okay. Believe what you want if it helps you sleep. That's what we do, isn't it? Build ourselves a comfy web of reality like busy little spiders and cling to it so we can get through the worst of days. We've had plenty of troubled days, haven't we? All of us. The ground shifts and the world changes and we go tumbling. It can happen in the time it takes for a traveler to step off an international flight and sneeze. Or the time it takes for a man with a crushed windpipe to stop breathing. I've seen all that, just like you. But I've known other things. The kind of world-bending events that can't be tracked by the news or by scientists. Changes that no one else on Earth will ever know. Tell us a little bit about why American football was this kind of mechanic for changing universe. And then we'll talk about what happens when Ash does shift into these different universes. Well, it all started years ago when I was uh, speaking at a school. And a student asked a question and he said, how come you haven't written a football story? You know, an American football story. He was, you know, a sports kid and he wanted a football story. And so I said, well, if I ever have a story that lends itself to being told through the world of football, I would do it. And he said, well, what kind of story would you write? And I said, well, it would be a story that's kind of in line with the types of things that I like to write, you know, sort of mind bending kinds of stories like, you know, a football player who tackles so hard, he bounces into alternate universes. And I just said that off the top of my head, but it's stuck in my head. And that night I couldn't sleep because I kept thinking about this idea. Now it was many years before I actually started to develop the idea because having an interesting idea is only the very beginning. 
I really need to have a story that has a reason to be told. And I started to think, what if the worlds that this character jumps into are different social realities, where he has to experience all of these different issues that he's sort of been blind to? And realizing that I could make this a story about that made me very excited to tell it. And that really brings us to the sort of overarching theme of this. Now, it's often said about literature that one of the strengths of literature, um, perhaps even over the other arts, is that it allows you to walk in the shoes of another character. And what we have here is something really meta, (laughs) because not only are we walking in the shoes of another character, we're walking in the shoes of a character who's walking in the shoes of his other selves. And so this overarching thing that crosses all the universes is really one of coming to understand or what we might term the development of empathy. Is that how you would see what the story is really about? It's all about empathy. And it's funny that you mentioned the, you know, walking in another person's shoes, because as a writer, I wanted to take that even further in this, Uh, not just walking in someone's shoes, but understanding the reason for the journey. You know, I want to make readers the road. And it becomes increasingly complex as we go through those different roads, things that may appear to be quite simple about understanding somebody else's point of view become more complex as Asher's awareness of the limitations (laughs) of his understanding grow. Yes, he starts off with very limited perspective on various different social issues. Now, he's not a bad kid. He just has sort of this narrow point of view because he's never lived outside of his own comfort zone. Well, this entire book is about him being hurled outside of his comfort zone uh, and seeing the world from all these new perspectives and grappling with it and learning from it. And I think the other thing that comes across is there's there's no point really understanding the point of view of somebody else unless you're prepared to take some kind of action. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's what Ash comes to understand is that, uh, you know, he, his best friend is his name is Leo and he's black. And Leo is constantly uh, telling Ash that he just doesn't get it. No. Yeah. You can be supportive, but you don't know what it's like to be me. And Ash doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what Leo's talking about. He thinks he understands the issues. He thinks he has a handle on it, but then once the world starts to change, he realizes that he doesn't. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on the issue of racism, which is one of the social realities that Ash enters, a sort of pre-desegregation, if you like. And it kind of lulls the reader into a false sense of superiority because you think, oh, that's what it used to be like. And of course, you bring us back time and time again to actually, you know, our world's not so very different. And Ash comes to realise that the things that perhaps he's experiencing in a more extreme form really haven't gone away. Precisely. Uh, Ash bounces into a world where the United States is still segregated. And he's horrified by it. Uh, and because he has his, he has memories of who he was originally, but he also has memories of who he is in this new world. He's horrified by who he is, by the world around him, but also he realizes that our world, the world that he came from, still has a lot of the same issues and is not all that much further along. 
And that is a, that is a huge realization for him. Yeah. And of course, it's not just uh, racism. He also has to deal with homophobia as well. Tell us a little bit about that existence that he has and what you were exploring there. Uh, well, and, you know, in each of the worlds, he is, you know, the world changes in some of them and he changes in others. And one of the worlds that he bounces into, he can't discern what the changes in the world. It's all exactly the way the world was before. But then he realizes that in this world, he's gay. And he, for the first time, has to come to terms with what that feels like. And he has a, a secret relationship with a friend. And uh, he's been a closeted teenager. And he's struggling with that. And now he sees it from that side. And he never had a problem with it before, but he never understood it either. And another kind of person that he becomes is, is a girl, a cheerleader. And there you're exploring issues around abusive relationships. There's a lovely quote I thought about abuse being like balmy summer skies where the morning sun makes you forget the thunderstorm that's coming in the afternoon. It's not always easy for the person who's undergoing that abuse to recognize what's coming. Otherwise, they wouldn't step there. Exactly. Uh, in the course of the story, we meet a character named Layton, who is the quarterback of the team and, and his girlfriend, Katie. And there's rumors and hints that their relationship is abusive, but it's not overtly abusive. It's more emotionally and psychologically abusive. Uh, well, when Ash has one of these big hits on the field, suddenly he finds himself not on the field anymore, but on the sidelines as a cheerleader. Now he's not Ash, he's Ashley. And she is in a relationship with Layton. So uh, Ashley is the one who is in that abusive relationship now and comes to understand that abusers don't telegraph that they're abusers. It's not always obvious. It's not as simple as you know someone who slaps a woman. It can be very insidious and you can get trapped in this emotional, psychological abuse. And Ashley now understands what that feels like. There are all these issues that um, connect with our world, our universe that we live in. And then there are some themes that uh, underpin this that make us kind of question. When you were talking about objections to segregation being a mile wide, but only an inch deep. You know, that really stopped and made me think we, we might be objecting, but how deep do our rejections of those ideas really go? There was one moment in the story where Ash is recounting uh, a time that he went out with Leo, his friend, his black friend, to protest about police violence and institutional racism. And they went out with a whole lot of people out onto the street corners with signs and people were honking in support and Leo got angry. And Ash just didn't understand, you know, here are all these people supporting, why would you be angry? And Leo said, honk if you hate racism is not going to change anything. You know, people will honk their horn and support and then be able to feel like they can go on with their lives and do nothing because they honked. Mm. There needs to be actual action mm. to end, end institutionalized racism. Mm. Uh, just saying that you, uh, you know, support it is, is not enough. You also explore issues of wealth and poverty 
And the same would be true of poverty. You know, you can feel that you've done the right thing by supporting your local soup kitchen or your local, as we have, food banks. But you have to question why those things exist in the first place. Otherwise, that's a little bit like honking your horn, isn't it? Yes, it's many times we do things to satisfy our own guilt rather than actually doing things that will solve the problem. Yeah, definitely. It's also, um, I think, uh, a book that moves towards very deep philosophical ideas um, and existentialism, to put a big word in there. (laughs) And you talk a lot about the complexity of the universe and the extent to which people are willing to embrace that and find it comforting or whether it's demoralizing. And so people try not to think about the complexity of the universe. And I found it so interesting, your thinking around those ideas. Can you tell us a little bit more? There's this moment in the story when Ash really, really reflects on his place in the universe, our place in the universe. And it's one of my favorite chapters. He talks about red blood cells and how a red blood cell, if it was conscious, would have no concept that it was part of a larger organism. And it would wish that it could could have a purpose, not realizing that it served a great purpose already. And Ash likens himself to that red blood cell, to all of us to that. We may never see the entire extent of the universe. We can't see. We are incapable of it but we are all an integral part of it. Some people are terrified by the, by the immensity of the universe. Other people are comforted by it. Uh, I, as Ash, uh, feel comforted by the fact that there are things that I will never understand, that the universe is greater than my ability to comprehend. I find that comforting. Mm. It reminded me a little bit of the picture book by fellow American, uh, Isban Banyai. Do you know Zoom? the picture book it starts with uh, an image of a crown on a cockerel and it zooms out and you realize that that cockerel is really just a toy in a farm and you zoom out and you zoom out and then it zooms out into the universe and you're just left thinking well that tiny little thing it's still there even though I can't see it now so where is my place in all of this you know I'm just Mm -hmm. a tiny speck here similar sort of idea explored through a different medium Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's a wonderful book. I was also interested in your reflections on on history too. That crops up throughout, and at one point you talk about history being influenced by hidden factors that no one even thinks about. You know, we think about the big moments in history as though that's what changes the course of history. And following from that, I really had a question about how well you think an understanding of history serves us in trying to create a better world? Uh, You know, they say that uh, history is written by the winners, and it's very difficult to get an objective history. Uh, We we keep trying to look at look at history and try to find objective points of view and realize, you know, the the things that we've done wrong, the, the way that we have been seeing things through a biased lens. We can never get it exactly. In doing my research for Game Changer, I came across a whole lot of different, the, the sort of the hidden facts of what was going on is something that is not necessarily widely known. For instance, the end of segregation. At the time, it was the Cold War, and we were trying to gain moral superiority over the Soviet Union. And our record with racial issues in the United States was well known. 
I mean, you know, there was segregation and of course, slavery back in the 1800s. And so in order to, to look better to the world and to sort of give ourselves that uh, moral high ground, the, the United States banned segregation. But the question was, if, if the Cold War wasn't going on, if we did not have to put ourselves in a place of feeling morally superior, would it have happened? And I don't know. And few people even know that that was a factor in making the decision. So interesting. You also go back to the so-called dark ages, the kind of medieval period, and talk about you know how it was left-handed people who were amongst the victimized at that point in time. And is there more connection between the way that people regard difference, if you like? Are they more connected than we sometimes give credence to? Uh, I think they are, they are intimately connected. You know, I, I call it in the book, I call it the cockroach of ignorance. Mm-hmm. The cockroach of ignorance moves around a lot. It hides in dark places, but it's always there. We, we can't get rid of it. So whether you're persecuting left-handed people for being witches back in the, in the dark ages, or whether it's hate crimes now, it's the same thing. And the only way to get rid of that cockroach is to shine a light on all the places where it hides. And literature has a role to play in that. Very much so. I know that you've written about sort of perfect worlds in the past as well. And this isn't about perfect worlds, although in a sense, I suppose Ashes feels that he's reaching for the perfect universe, the perfect world. Uh, There was something that I found really interesting and telling when he's thinking about his father in one of these universes who's much more successful than in his original world, his original universe. And he says, I didn't like the person that success had made of my father. I preferred the failure. And the failure is in inverted uh, commas. Again, I found that a really compelling idea that sometimes the struggle and the failure actually do make better people of us than perhaps too much success and too much perfection. Ash gets to see various versions of his father. In the original world, his father considers himself a failure and is full of regrets. But uh, in one of the worlds that he jumps into, his father was a successful football player and has now a, a successful business selling nutritional supplements. And his father in this world is not necessarily a nice guy. He prefers who his father was. And so he gets to see both sides of that. As we say, it's a story that's packed with things for us to think about and reflect upon. Uh, But it is also an exciting story, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, And I wanted to ask you about the Eddies. They're just (laughs) such a fantastic uh, creation. Tell us a little bit more about them. The first time Ash jumps into a different world, there's this one skater kid who skates by, and he thinks nothing of it. As soon as he jumps into the second world, however, there's twins. And in the third world, there's three of them. And we come to realize that this is actually this multidimensional being. There's only one, but it represents in each of the worlds. And so each time he jumps, there's more of them. Uh, And they sort of play the part of the character that kind of explains a little bit about how the universe works. Not completely. They sort of, you know, it's... uh, still a little bit cryptic, but they say that their job is to help the person who's creating these jumps 
uh, he, they call them the subjective locus, the, the temporary center of the universe. And it's their job to help them get back to where they started. However, they don't always agree. And so they're constantly bickering with each other. And there was a, a cartoon series of about 10, 15 years old called Ed, Ed and Eddie, about three friends named Ed. And so Ash's personality was kind of like to name them that when he first meets them, when he first actually interacts with them, there's three of them. So he calls them Ed, Ed and Eddie. And then, of course, each time we add another one, then there's Eduardo and, uh, and so it and, and just keeps on going. But they are fun characters. They add a little bit of, uh, of levity to the story. You know, I'm very influenced when it comes to writing things that are humorous by, uh, by Douglas Adams. And so they kind of have a little bit of a Douglas Adams kind of absurd feel to them. Yeah. And the story needs that, doesn't it, really? And I love the kind of baths that Ash has to take. Mint, crushed eggshell and potassium, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I sense you are enjoying yourself writing those scenes. Yeah. Well, you know, I looked up what is, you know, he has these massive headaches because his brain, each time his brain is crammed with an entire new life of memories. And so he has these headaches. And so the, the Edwards tell him that mint eggshells and potassium baths will help him. And I actually looked up, you know, what, what can ease headaches, what natural remedies can do that. And mint, potassium, and, uh, and eggshells came up. And when I thought about that, I says, well, that's EMP, like an electromagnetic pulse. And so taking an EMP bath, and I thought, that's kind of cool. That's kind of a fun little play on words or, or uh, a play on abbreviations there. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Um, just finally, I was interested in reading your biography. You were born in New York, weren't you? And then yes. at 16, I understand you went to live in Mexico City. Did you find that that was quite formative in shaping your thinking about the sorts of things you write about? I think so. I mean, I was given the opportunity to see the world from a whole new perspective and to really become a citizen of the world. And I, I think it was the two most formative years of my life. You know, they say that your childhood is your formative years. For me, it was those years when I was uprooted with my parents and moved down to Mexico. My father was an engineer and his company transferred him there. And so it just happened very suddenly during the summer over a period of two weeks uh, in, what was it, 19, it was in 70, 78, in 78 when I, when I went there and I graduated from high school in Mexico in 1980. And from there, I felt like I could conquer the world. Mm -hmm. It was really a life-changing experience. I don't think I would have had the nerve to try to become a writer had I not had that experience. That's so interesting. And it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you uh, today, Neil. Thank you so much for joining me all the way from Florida. It feels as though you're in the next door room, uh, but it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It has been an honour. Thank you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform. <laughs>